Yeah, you know, uh, interesting. I was talking to uh, one of my clients, which is Royal Caribbean Cruises. <laughs> and um, they, they um, it's about a zipline accident on a ship, you know. Mm. And I said, well, can I, you know, can I visit the ship? Well, not really, because it just... It, along with all the other ships, are all like floating out in, you know, between Florida and the Bahamas. And they can't land in the U.S., but they can land one at a time in the Bahamas. So they're just out there. They resupply and then they go and float around out there with the crew on board. They're just in limbo. Limbo. It's kind of like yeah. circling the airport, waiting for your chance to land. Except you have to do that every 10 days because you need more fuel. Yeah, they're like doing touch and goes. They're just like, <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's crazy. It's a weird world, so. Welcome, everyone, to Vertical Playpen. In this episode, you're going to hear from a guest host, Chris Damboys, as he interviews his longtime friend and one of the original authors of the ACCT standards, Rich Kleincheck. As always, please rate, review, subscribe, all of those things help us out. If you want to go to the rooftop and yell out vertical playpen, that's your own choice. Um, Probably isn't going to help us get listeners. People may think you're just losing it, but it's those times, you know, that makes sense. Um, Anyway, thank you so much and enjoy. Welcome. Uh, my name is Chris Amboys. I'm the guest host of Vertical Playpen High Fives podcast for this week. And I have the privilege and joy of conversing with my dear friend and colleague from many years past, Rich Kleincheck. And uh, yeah, we're looking forward to spending the next hour or so chatting together and seeing, uh, seeing what comes up and bubbles up from from our collective memories. So, Rich, do you want to take a moment to introduce yourself? Hi, Chris. Yes, uh, Rich Kleinscheck. I've been in this business for, this is my 30th, 31st year, I guess, in this wow. business. That's what I said when I tried <laughs> to count on what happened. But here we are in 2020, uh, and I got in the business in 1990. And um, in fact, I met you, Chris. Um, I think right around that time, because we were yep. at the Hurricane Island Hour Bound School, you were one of the lead guys, rock climbing director, I think at that point. Yeah. And I was, I was uh, building the ropes course that we were building the ropes course and you were helping. Yeah. <laughs> when that I was a long time ago. That, that Yeah, that was 1991, I believe. That was right yeah. when I was new. Yeah, you were relatively new. We'll get into that because I think you were probably an intern before you started building, or maybe that was all part of that. But we'll get into that story. Yeah, um, I was we, an intern. Yeah, as we traverse your history here in a little bit. Where, yeah. where are you recording from today? Are you in the U.S. and Canada? I'm sitting in my uh, office in Ontario, Canada. Uh, I've got a very kind of a strange situation where I. My business is based in Gloucester, Massachusetts, as it has been ever since I started my business. And uh, that's where I'm legally located. But m- my wife is legally located in Canada. So uh, over the last few years, I've been bouncing back and forth between uh, the U.S. and Canada. Of course, most of my work is in the U.S. because that's where I, 
um, that's where I got it going and where it is still going. Well, actually, that's another thing to talk about. <laughs> is it still going? <laughs> <laughs> but um, I, I, I find myself in, in Canada. I just finished my two-week self-quarantine after coming back from America. And uh, so now I can be closer to my wife, which is a little bit more normal. Yeah. And I can go, I can go to the grocery store. <laughs> right. So if, you, if you want to, first if you want to go to the grocery store. <laughs> I don't really want to go. <laughs> the grocery store is not much fun, actually. <laughs> yeah. Um, I don't really want to go anywhere. I've been going out for bike rides. and I think that's safe enough. I'm not, not um, spewing on anybody and they're not spewing on me. So yeah. Um, it's it, it is the first spring in 30 years that I've been home for any stretch of time because of the nature of the business we're in. Yeah. You know, it's one of those things in springtime, everybody wants to open. We're always on the road, fixing things, inspecting things. This year, nope. Don't nope. know what's happening. It's a deep reset. Deep reset. I yeah. don't know if my clients are going to open this year, honestly. I mean, yeah. Uh, you know, who's going to want to go, even if the economy is open, who's going to want to go to an adventure park and crowd around um, the platform? Not many. I don't think many people are. Not me. <laughs> right. And so, uh, you know, it'd be brave for the, uh, the park owners to, you know, undergo all their training and their expenses of fixing things and having it inspected and then have nobody show up. Yeah. I think we have, I think we've got a few months to learn what that's really going to mean. I think before yeah. people can make really good judgments about that, but yeah, we yeah. have to keep our plans kind of extremely loose. Yeah. Fluid is a good plan and having a, B, C, D and E or one, two, three, four, and five options are probably the way to go. So let's talk yes, a little right. bit about um, your start in the world of adventure. I'm not sure where that actually started for you. I know that what I know of you, you're an adventurous, adventurous soul beyond yes. like the work you do. But where did, where did all this business sort of begin for you? Do you have a sense of that? Well, I've always been, I've always had the adventurous spirit. So whatever I, you know, before I became a professional in the adventure world, which is somewhat of a misnomer, but you know, that's what we call it. Yeah. Um, I'd done all sorts of things in the outdoors. I, I happened to, to um, be friends with a guy who was very into the wilderness, outdoors, outward bound world. Um, he was a good friend from school and university. And uh, he's the guy that kind of sucked me into, you know, the climbing world, even the ropes course world, because as an outward bound instructor, he was doing corporate programs for General Motors way back in the 80s when they were doing the Saturn training uh, with Pecos River. And he was, um, because he had experience on ropes courses with Outward Bound, he was hired as a facilitator for Pecos River. And then he pulled me into it. This is in 1988. Um, he got me into the ropes course thing, which it kind of fit with everything else that I'd done. You know, oh, yeah, this is cool. This is different. I didn't at that point want to really be a normal old engineer. I was uh, interested in other things. I sat in an office long enough to know that I don't want to sit in an office 
long. <laughs> Good luck. <laughs> However, you know, 20 years later, I ended up sitting in the office a long time <laughs> thinking, I thought I wanted to get away from this. <laughs> but uh, that's what, that's how it goes. <laughs> um, but I, um, you know, after that Pecos River experience, I then um, had, had already quit my job, actually, um, as an engineer and at a boat building company. So I, I was in the boat sailboat building world. Um, I ended up going away for two years and traveling around the world, um, spent lots of time doing interesting stuff. But when I got back in 1990, it was like, okay, I really don't want to be a normal engineer now. And I don't know what I want to do. Mm-hmm. But then I remembered, I recalled uh, the experience on the ropes course. And then uh, had, I saw an ad, um, somebody at a party in the fall of 1990 said, oh, I saw an ad that's Project Adventure Canada was looking for somebody to, um, you know, become an intern and, and, and start up a Project Adventure Canada. Like, oh, that sounds kind of interesting. I, my friend told me about um, told me about this Project Adventure thing, and so I pursued that opportunity and ended up becoming an intern uh, under Jim Scholl at Project Adventure. Uh, I didn't realize you were Jim Scholl's intern. I didn't know if there was like, a specific person assigned to you, Jim. He's the he's the most unengineer like person possible, which was fine with me. I didn't want an engineer person. I know that's perfect. <laughs> it was. Um, so I did. So I was an intern at Project Adventure, and it seemed like it was going to. I could be an intern forever until I said, "Well, hey guys, I mean, I've been an intern for a year now, and um, you know what's going to happen." And yeah, I'm not going to volunteer forever. The world I come from. We don't volunteer all the time. Um, <laughs> so, so by that, you know, I, 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 the Project Adventure Canada thing didn't work out um, as planned. So I asked to, to become an employee at PA in Massachusetts. This is like the end of 1990. And I became a, a staff person in 1991. Yeah, sort of to learn, and and it was interesting because the um, the way I sort of the way I was then I was learning everything I could about the running of the business from from um, perspective of wanting to come back to Canada and do everything. So I was involved in training, building, business management. Mark Collard was that was at PA at that time, and he was doing the same thing in Australia. So we were. You know, he had a business plan for PA Australia and he, you know, we, he would help me sort of figure out the plan for Canada. And, and um, so it was kind of an interesting time. And then there were New Zealanders around um, at the same time who were doing the same thing. So it was a bunch of internationals that were, um, were at PA. And so that's how I ended up, you know, being doing a lot of training as well as, you know, reverse engineering and and um, being involved in building and all the different facets of PA in the early years I was there. Awesome. Yeah, so that was 1999. You were full-time. 91. 91. 91. Yeah. yeah. No, I think it was during 91. Interesting. That we ran into each other. You were all bearded, and you were like a, a big hairball. 
I was, I yeah, I was in outward bound attire. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I can't grow a beard, so I could never look like that. But I remember that for me, that was a fairly unconventional route, challenge course at the time, even though now we would call it conventional. Here we were not putting utility poles in by hand and yes. drilling large rock faces to guy things to, yep. you know, Cicaflex and epoxying these large eye bolts in. And yeah, that was cause I'd only seen, uh, you know, treed challenge courses prior to that. So that was my entry into that more engineered world of challenge courses. Yeah. Sort of engineered. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, I was actually a, an instructor applicant at Hurricane Island. Um, when I got back from my trip, because that was one of the options I was looking at. And when that, uh, we did our service project during that trip, it was digging the holes for the poles for the ropes course. And Jane Panacucci was the, was the director in, in, in charge of the development of the ropes course then. So first time I met Jane was when I was standing in a hole and she was saying, put that there, do this, take this rock out of here. So that's kind of funny. It Jane amazes ended up being, me. We were, he was, she was our colleague for years. Yeah. Yeah. It, yeah. It's amazing to me the intersections in this field. Like we're all doing very diverse things now and we're doing very diverse things before. But like how that constellation of people coming together at particular points in time. Yeah. It's just, it's just astounding that yes. that can occur. Thanks for sharing that. That's an interesting sort of entry point. And so you know, adventure in terms of the adventure education field is for you synonymously tied to challenge courses. They're all one and the same pretty much. So, you know, when you were talking about doing a little bit of everything, a little bit of building, a little bit of training, a little bit of direct facilitation, probably with groups, um, what of those sort of three areas, did one in particular really draw you in? Yeah, the training part. I, I love the training. I'm a people person. So, you know, and I had mentors like Carl Ronke, you know, who, you know, I could do workshops with Charlie Harrington, these, you know, pillars of who, who are like the pros. They were the best of the best. Yeah. And when you get to work with these guys, well, actually it's difficult to work with them because you don't know what's going on, <laughs> but you, but you do um, see, you know, how they work, how they work their magic. Jim Grout was one of those people too, actually. Yeah. Uh, back then, but having the opportunity just to work with these guys, I was absorbing it like a sponge, you know, and, and, um, and I, you know, I'm, uh, I'm talented at the same, in the same area too. So I was developing that whole area that I'd never used. It's like this, this part that had, you know, had never been explored of me. So I learned yeah. a lot and, and I enjoyed training. Um, I wanted to do more training than I wanted to do anything else, but the fact that I was, technically trained, you know, um, professionally technically trained didn't allow me to escape it completely. And I kept getting more and more sucked into, um, the tech side, side, which is okay. I mean, I'm technically oriented too. So it wasn't a nightmare. It's just, um, I was more inclined to do training. So technical training ended up being like the perfect spot. Yeah. I can can do still play games with people and and build team and and enjoy you know have fun but also teach and learn technical yep you know technical things yeah I remember 
working with you a few times and you were one of those few tech people who were really comfortable doing wham sam sam or button factory or i don't know what some of those other things are that even some people who were trainer trainers wouldn't touch with a 10-foot pole so i always appreciated that about you <laughs> well thank you well i loved it it was just it was it was great it was like what we why can't we have fun doing non-technical games in the evening because i mean we work 16-hour days when you're doing those trainings in those days and yeah um why can't you just do do that fun stuff it's great yeah yeah people love it it is people do love that you know it's interesting that you know of those those areas training was the one that you most identified and 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 sort of cherish around that but your sort of real professional trajectory took you slightly away from really training and was that a was that an opportunity that you saw? You're like, oh, I could make my way here? Or was it a need from the company, from Project Adventure at the time, to sort of pull you over into what I would call challenge course design, installation, product design? Um, it's interesting. I, um, you know, I have a technical head, so when I saw how things were done, I also saw how it could be improved. You know, I just, you know, why, why is everybody put guys uh, above um, belay cables? What, you know, what, what's, that doesn't make sense from an engineering point of view. It makes sense to put the bolt below it because of the way the loads work. Why do we have pulleys that look like this <laughs> when and, they could look like that? And weigh this much. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, we didn't decrease the weight of them, but we, we made them better. So I mean, I was I saw lots of room for uh, room for improvement in both design of things, and I also and I think PA wanted to know at that point, and the industry wanted to know if the stuff that we're building is uh, strong enough, and what does strong enough mean? And there weren't many people in the industry at that time who could answer that question. So that's when I got involved in um, what before ACCT, the, the Ropes Course Builders Group. And um, starting standards along with Tim Kempf and, you know, Bob was, Bob Ryan was there also and um, other people from different companies, Bobby Todd, uh, Dan Pervorce, there were a number of people who were involved in the standards at the beginning, uh, early 90s. Yep. And so uh, I got involved in writing those standards right from the get-go. Yeah. which turned out to be the ACCT standards and the little brown book that we published in 1994. 94, the original ones, yeah. The original book, it was half, you know, it was half-sized piece of paper, double-spaced. <laughs> I think it was 15 pages long, and that's all we could agree on. Yep. <clears throat> but, well, I, but, you know, I was suited for the standards work, and I remember, um, you know, Carl, Carl didn't like standards very much. He, he uh, didn't appreciate the um you know being 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 told what to do i guess is what was probably the main thing but um yeah but he also but he did appreciate the fact that we needed to do something but and you know the choices that he made back in the day of using three eighth inch diameter seven by 19 uh galvanized aircraft cable was actually a very good decision that's yeah. the right size so what so the reverse engineering part was you know what? It's been done pretty well all this time. And all we yep. need to do is tweak it a little bit. 
and understand yep. it better. No, it's interesting that, you know, from his, his uh, creative background, he was making good decisions and mm-hmm. you could then verify it from your tech background that those in fact were good decisions and that moved everybody forward, you know. Absolutely. Despite yep. the fact that probably those early days of ACCT were as much about consensus building and coming together as they were about actually writing the standards. You know, yes. it was probably just about building community, really. Yeah, we didn't have a community then. It was right. just a pe- bunch of people that were in the same business. Yeah. Um, I, so, I wanna, yeah. I, 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 we'll follow up with ACCT in a little bit, but I want to get back to the design of stuff for a minute. Um, I think people are you know, familiar with some of your work, but I, I'm curious. Here, here's a question. I, I wrote it down because I, I wanted to remember it. Um, if you could talk a little bit about where you see safety, design, and program outcomes overlapping, like take the K1 pulley, for example. Besides it being a good product that's reliable and it was needed in the market at the time, how does it have how does it have the right balance of safety design and sort of program outcomes sort of built into that? Or how did you come to that? Or do that did only one of those play a role in the design of that product? Well, I could see the value of having a pulley up top, which is why Carl de- developed the pulley in the first place was, you know, instead of dragging carabiners across the wire rope, which, you know, you get that uh, basically sawing action, um, having something that rolls across um, to enable people to to traverse elements was a great idea. I just, um, it's it's more of an aesthetic sense than a functional sense. I just wanted, I knew it could look better, have some built-in safety and design, meaning, um, you know, if, if, if the bolt or rivet failed, then the whole thing wouldn't fail. Um, and some of the older designs, that wasn't the case. So there's this whole like redundancy. We, I don't want to talk about redundancy very much, but yeah, that's okay. they're, they're having some built-in redundancy that's, that's elegant was a attractive thing. So it was, there weren't any new goals. It, it was just mainly let's accomplish the same thing with a, a better product. Yeah, and that was the same as doing the client saver. I did not name that. That was a Jim Dowd. Yes, <laughs> wine with, saver with a K on it. You, you, a unanimous, uh, uh, resounding yes from the rest of the CCDI staff at the time in that naming of that product. And I was like, "No, don't do that." But anyway, so there, there we are. But it's a shear reduction device, and um, the whole idea of having shear reduction devices at that time was uh, interesting. Some people thought it was unnecessary. Um, some people thought it was a money grab to sell something else to people. Yeah. But they actually do serve a purpose. Yeah. They make the rope last longer, uh, basically. Well, and they also allow you a consistent um, turning point for the rope with a predictable amount of friction so that you can align yes. your, your rope size and your belay device friction quality and always mm-hmm. know that it's going to work in the same way up there. Mm-hmm. So, so again, it's like, let's, you know, the function is good. Um, didn't like, you know, the shear reduction block very much or the spin static black spin static um, pulley right. very much at the time. So this was just a refinement of that. And it's, and, and look cool. Cause I mean, I was involved in the sailboat industry before. So I was involved in 
uh, products that look like that. And that's what that's the sort of crossover that I could provide that nobody else could at that time was the sailing hardware. Um, not only look, but the manufacturer that made it was a sailing hardware manufacturer. Yeah. Based on the relationship I had previously. When you start a design process, like, I don't know, maybe you were thinking about um, what later became known as the safer lanyard. Mm-hmm. Um, where does the first spark of imagination or inspiration come from for you as you're thinking about a product like that, that maybe doesn't exist yet or doesn't exist in that form? Well, it's first of all, identifying that there's a problem to solve. Seeing, you know, what equipment is out there, how is it being used, or how could it be used? You know, what are the multiple uses for something? And then how could it be better? That's sort of how I look at stuff. You know, you see any piece of gear. Okay, like that works for that, but, but you have to have one that's sort of like it to do, you know, the other thing. Why can't we have something that's, that does both? And why can't we make it out of a, you know, a webbing material versus rope, say? And why can't we, you know, in, integrate a, a this into it? So it's more, it's sort of iterative, but it's also just um, uh, sort of recognizing. I like streamlining. I like sort of efficient efficiency and, and just uh, seeing clunky things in use just bug me. So... Yep. That's why, that's why that's the impetus to, to make it happen. And then it's fun just to experiment like, okay, what's on the market? Uh, what, you know, what's that thing do? What can we do that's uses what's on the market and add this or that to it? Or, um, yeah, d- developing the safer lanyard was sort of a similar thing to that. Yeah. And then having that, that middle connection point, because that didn't, we didn't, they didn't run out there then. That was a game changer. That really, that positioning point or working point really introduced a whole other level of working on a course that wasn't available prior in the same way. Right. And it's just a little tweak to it. What was out there? Yeah. So it it wasn't, that's exactly what I mean. It's like, what can, how can we make this thing more versatile so that you can take one thing up there and do a whole bunch of, you can even use it as a zip lanyard. Yeah. You know, just (laughs) clip yourself the shock pack right to the zip. So minimize the gear, be efficient. A place we touched upon earlier was a little bit, it was around your intersection with the world of ACCT and the development of those first meetings. I think that probably the first one was held down at NCOBS with um, the Outward Bound folks down in North Carolina early on in the day. And you talked about, you know, being in those first meetings, building community, trying to come to some consensus, developing a 15 piece of page piece of paper with some things you could agree on. And I'm, I'm curious, you know, like what, what exactly is your role in ACCT now? And, and without, you know, prior to COVID-19, you know, like where was ACCT going? What does that mean? And then maybe a little insight into what that might mean for the industry in the Mm -hmm. current thing so yeah i'll let you start wherever it seems most appropriate well i uh just a correction i never i never uh i wasn't at the first meeting okay. or the second one there was one at pecos river too i think that was the second one i made it to the third one which was in massachusetts in northeastern gotcha in 1991 that was my inaugural acct which was an acct we named it acct there 
but it, yep. it, it was still the ropes course builder symposium. Yep. And, uh, I've been to everyone since 1991. Wow. <laughs> so, now I have to go. <laughs> yes. That's just, I got to keep the street going. Yeah. You're an institution now. <laughs> I suppose I never wanted to be one. Um, <laughs> definitely a standards inst- institution. Yeah, um, I'm. I'm the only one that's been involved in the standards process, right from day pretty much day one till to now. And uh, interesting sort of evolution. I mean, there was initially the group of people on the installation standards committee. That's what we called it. And that was the only one, only standards committee at that time. And we went on for a few editions of the standards through the 1990s. I don't know, some, sometime in the mid to late 90s, that's when the operation standards, I believe. We had another committee. We needed to write standards for operations, of course, it's because it ain't all about the stuff. It's about what the people that use the stuff. Clearly, we know this now. So um, that's, that standard was written by a different group of people. And we operated in our own little you know, silo worlds, um, didn't communicate that much with each other except when it came time to publish a book and it's like, Oh, you call this that. And we call it something else. <laughs> and, uh, we went on like that for a long time. Um, we, and we fixed the, the problems usually just before publishing, which usually ended up being new year's Eve or something. <laughs> <laughs> Where you'd be reading frantically reading that dang book, trying to correct problems because it needed to be published because it needed to be released at the conference, which is always like a month later. Right. So it was just always a bad, bad timing, but, um, perfect holiday cheer. Yeah. Yeah. It, uh, it was torture actually for lots of people, but, uh, you know, we, we developed different committees to, to tackle different issues. There was of course ethics. Um, then there was practitioner certification. There's, you know, all these different things that popped up. Now, um, sort of fast forward to the way we've just restructured um, committees is that there's a now there's two what you would call super committees. They've been called super committees. Sounds good. Um, one of them deals with accreditation certification. And that's you know, Micah Henderson's group. Uh, and there's another one now called Tire, not Tired but tire um, just getting rolling. <laughs> Sorry. Tomorrow's I missed our, that. <laughs> tomorrow's our first meeting. Um, I am now chair of the tire committee and the tire stands for, if you want to guess, first word is technical, technical information, research and education committee. Mm. So, it's it's getting away from being called standards because uh, standards are really the realm of consensus group. And although um, a lot of the technical writing that comes out of this new tire committee will be sta- draft standards for the consensus group to consider, we'll also be producing white papers, technical bulletins, written information about whatever that doesn't necessarily have to go through the standards process, the ANSI certified, you know, accredited process. Right. And so we wanted to have the freedom to 
uh, just be able to write whatever needed to be written about whatever topic. And of course, we stay connected to the consensus group because we're they need to know what's coming and what we're thinking. So the the DPI committee, what used to be the installation standards, became the design performance inspection standards committee, is gone. And so is the operation standard committee. They don't exist anymore. Yeah. And you're going to be the chair for this committee? Yes, the de facto chair, because I was the chair of the standards development committee. And so once we dissolved everybody, the only people left were the three members of that were just standards development. And I was one of them. And um, Josh Todd and Sarah Osterhaus were the other two, and and we've elected we we under our terms of reference we we get to appoint the members of this committee. So there's a group of eight that are it's it's gender gender balanced completely for women for men, and um, pretty proud of that actually because um, not many of our committees were they never were gender balanced. I was going to say long overdue, <laughs> long overdue. Long overdue, yeah. So I'm really excited about it. It's all awesome. new, new. Rich, one of the major things that we noticed in the world of what I would call um, educational use traditional challenge courses was the change in the standard um, in the operations pieces in particular around facilitated, guided, and self-guided. Can you talk a little bit about like how that came about what the opportunities are with those three different designations and sure well we realized that we with the commercial you know world coming into like colliding i guess originally colliding with our world um, we realized that they were using similar equipment and similar um uh structures even for completely different purposes and 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 used in using different equipment different whole everything's different you know having a guide versus a facilitator is a different thing having a monitor versus a guide or facilitator are like a completely different job and you know combined with the um authorities having jurisdiction you know like regulators yeah uh, getting involved and and bringing the amusement world into our world we didn't like it when it happened, still don't really like being called amusement, but certainly some stuff that in, in our, now it's in our world is amusement. So uh, it's so, sort of recognizing that we have enough commonalities that we should be the same industry. That was important, but how do we fit? You know, what we, we want to get rid of friction around, um, you know, we don't want to fight about, you know, what's facilitated, what isn't, what's, you know, this isn't, this doesn't have any value because it's not facilitated. You know, you don't, you know, you can't make any money doing this, but we can make money doing that. Like, forget yeah. about it. It's just different things. Yeah. Let's recognize it. And we realized that there was no, it was hard to apply the current standards that existed, which were mainly are focused around facilitated challenge courses to zip tours, to adventure parks where you just sign in and go. Yeah. So that's that was the impetus. And, you know, the Europeans were ahead of us in the commercial world as far as adventure parks went because, you know, there were hundreds and hundreds of them by yeah. the time we had our first one. So they had already written uh, standards that were useful for monitoring adventure activities. So we actually used their standards that they created 
four or five years ago to create that table that we've been the current standard around, you know, uh, level of, of monitoring of a person uh, being connected to how they are um, attached. Attached. You know, if you're, yeah, if you're tightly monitoring somebody like you would on a facilitated course, you can do it with self-locking carabiners. Right. As soon as you move the monitor away from that person, then you no longer can do that unless you are, um, you know, you can use different equipment for different levels of supervision. Yeah. And I thought that that was a really brilliant way of allowing things to be the way they were because they can be done safely if you're monitoring them close enough, if you're supervising. And um, all the way to um, you clip in and you roll all the way through on a continuous belay system and you don't need much except to have a coach on the ground to tell you how to get through that next activity. I think that we hit a really nice balance of re- just rewriting that chapter and dividing it up into three sec- three sections rather than rather than having a separate book as much was one of the ideas originally, but the solution we have now is good and satisfies yeah. all of those things. Yeah, and it even informed, you know, we have a, a static course on our facilitated challenge course, right? So even yeah. the information around the level of supervision to allow that to be safely managed, monitored in a facilitated environment was useful, I think, to many of our clients also. Um, and yeah, it's good. It helped us name things. Like we always used to talk about ratios. Like if it's one to 12, you really, are you really facilitating in a static course environment anymore? Or are you really monitoring? So then how do your ratios affect how you supervise, coach, ultimately facilitate that experience? So I'm glad to hear that, actually. That's, that's the idea. It yeah. gave people something to look to to give them some guidance that they never had before yeah from your training history is there like a an outrageous story you know without being off color but like is there a is there a like a a special memory of facilitating or or being in a training or something that sort of pops into your brain that you're like yeah this was brilliant this was adventure programming at its best or brightest or whatever well, I mean, some of the most memorable things um, are the old ones when I was first involved at Project Adventure because they were, they were like, I was impressionable, I guess, because yep. it was all new. And I, just, <laughs> I remember um, we, know, you know, we did that game Killer where you do the, circle on, the, the finger circle on your hip. You, you know, you'd be killing people and people were trying to figure out who the killer was and then, and then people would have dramatic deaths. Yeah. You know, after you've been killed, you have your death. Yeah. And I just, <laughs> I remember uh, Charlie Harrington and Carl doing a death, the death of Charlie, I think it was, where they drove a car to the front door of Loretto House while everybody was like in the back. It was after dinner or something. They're all hanging out in the living room, and they, and then they, they put the the car right up against the front door, and they had Charlie smashed between the front of the car. And the front door, and the and they got the horn to stick on. So when the horn went on, we all like ran out to see what was going on. And there's Charlie <laughs> squished, <laughs> laying on the hood of the car. <laughs> if Char- if Charlie I mean, Harrington is to- listening to this podcast, just know you're on our list, and we want to hear your version of this story too. 
Yeah, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe it was Carl, but it was it was the two of them came up with this idea. It really has nothing to do with um, with adventure education, but it was the kind of fun stuff that happened all the time. Yeah, um, that's a form of community the, building. You know, doing the sneaker graveyard with Carl at Hamilton Wenham Regional High School, like going back to, and it was again with those. It was I think it was the same workshop where. You know, he went back and... Can you describe the sneaker graveyard for people who do not know what that is? Well, it was a, it was a tension traverse, a low tension traverse across a, a or stream, river, that was, it was like a mud pit. It looked like it was about six inches deep, but it was actually like four feet deep. <laughs> so when you fall in, you, you sink down. And the reason it's called the sneaker graveyard is because your shoes would get eaten. They would get sucked. They'd get stuck in the bottom and couldn't get your feet out without take loose shoes. So then there there were shoes all over the place in there from pews in them. And so we went there during that. I think it was an adventure programming workshop. It was the same workshop, and we went over to Hamilton Wyndham to go to the the famous sneaker graveyard. And um. Now, of course, that was where the first Project Adventure course was, and that was part of it. And uh, we all tried to get across without falling in, which is not easy because it was like, you know, 40 feet long. <laughs> and and again, it was like the same thing. I think Carl and Charlie were just having a great time because they, you know, they loved doing workshops together. And um, this was like their, you know, this is a, a reunion workshop, I think, for them. And so I just remember... <laughs> Great memory was a, a trying it, but but B watching Carl go across, and he was going across. I think with Charlie, and and they got near the end, and Charlie fell off, and Carl was going to fall off, but he jumped. Char- Charlie fell off. Carl jumped off and stepped on Charlie's chest to jump to the shoreline, <laughs> so he didn't get wet. <laughs> but, <laughs> but he, but he, he, um, he sacrificed Charlie for, for that. Yeah. That was, yeah. that was hilarious. Yeah. So it was like memories like that. They have not much to do with the actual, you know, workshop curriculum, but they're just things that happen. Yeah. I, I think sort of by ending here, maybe taking a few moments just to share with us sort of what you do now. I know that your email address is rich at Consulting. So I'm sure there's something going on with CFOX that we probably haven't heard about yet. Um, I, my main work is inspecting zipline tours and adventure parks. And I do some consulting, like owner's rep work. I'm working with a group right now to develop a zipline tour. Um, and le- legal work, like working as an expert witness, which is actually very um, interesting work. Because you, a you you find out what really happens um, in accidents, and you're you you know it uses all of my skills, uh, yeah. skills of persuasion, analysis, um, uh, attention to detail, trying to figure out what happened, and also what needs to happen in standards, like what 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 are the things that keep on happening that we can stop by changing standards. So yeah. Um, Expert witness work is really good. That's good interesting. Work. The, yeah. So is there something that maybe our listeners who are 
traditionally, you know, traditional challenge courses facilitated educational realm without, you know, getting into the specifics of any particular lawsuit. Is there something that you've learned by doing that work that you could share with our listeners that might have some applicability? Like, is there some black swan event kind of thing that like hard to predict, but you ought to know it kind of thing? Well, certainly it's like human error is one of the main problems and zip lines are a main problem. You know, as soon as you start to um, move people at speed, you end up with accidents from them hitting stuff. So if you don't have, if you don't have a zip line or you, like there's been accidents on swings too, giant swings, but mainly zip lines, then you've eliminated, you know, three quarters of the, of the accidents. Um, having, a good training program and a manual that matches it exactly is important. Like don't have a manual that says we do this, but you don't do it. You got to, you know, write it down the way you do it and then make sure everybody knows that and does it, you know? So yeah. Um, yeah. It's all the stuff that, you know, we teach in workshops, but you see it happen in real life and people aren't as good as, as they should be on on that front but human errors i mean you see you know facilitators or staff people making mistakes that cause accidents yeah they're directly you know causal Mm -hmm. proximate causes of accidents yeah so yeah i mean you know in using using a vendor that knows what they're doing yeah rather than one that's like this is their first course and they were cheap I think yeah, alignment of the good, not a good combo. Yeah. I think alignment of vendors, you know, we, we get people coming to some of our trainings, but they've had a more commercially oriented vendor build their course. And then they come to mm-hmm. train with us and they're like, we can't do this stuff on our course. And we're like, I don't know what to tell you other than yeah. you, you, you got some misalignment here going on and that's really tough to help clients navigate any final thoughts for our listeners rich well final thoughts is the my final thought is about the business we're in the world we're in um of of getting people to um work together learn together um to appreciate being outside uh up up in the trees um just in closer to um uh, nature i guess you'd call it is a valuable thing to be in. You know, I think we need it more than ever now. You know, we're learning how to do community in different ways, but nothing beats, you know, a group in the trees yep. um, learning. So if you're in this industry, stay in it. There's a career for you. I didn't think I was going to have a career in this world. I, you know, I'd been in the business for 15 years before I realized that this is my career. Because <laughs> what, <laughs> what are you going to do now? <laughs> but you can go, I mean, I often talk to uh, young um, people in the, that are summer staff at places I, where I am. It's like they, they see me inspecting like, wow, cool. How can I do that? I'll just stay in the, do what you do well and keep learning and go, you know, go to the conference, get involved in stuff. And you too can do this if you think this is this good. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, stay well, with it. Unfortunately, I think the adventure field has gotten to the size and level of professionalism that 
there are ways to be both road warriors and office bound and everything in between. There's ways to be indoors yeah. and outdoors. There's ways to be managerial yeah. and or uh, direct service. There's all, there's room for everybody at this point. There are, you don't have to be a road. We used to have to be road warriors, but you know, if there's an adventure park, you can get a job at your local adventure park and live there and just go to work and come home. Yeah. And that's your job. And you can move up in the ranks of those places. So, you know, there's lots of, lots of good opportunity. It's a career. It is. So people can get in touch with me. My, my email is rich at cfoxconsulting.com. So SEA like the ocean, FOX like the animal, consulting.com. Awesome. Yeah. Happy well, to connect. Yeah. Well, thanks for chatting today and sharing your story. And um, yeah, I appreciate the connection. We need to do this more often than just on a podcast. Me too, Chris. <laughs> Absolutely, Chris. It's been, <laughs> I got going to say, it's been nice knowing you. <laughs> but I've known you. <laughs> I've known you for 30 years. I'm, I'm safe Almost. and sound. I'm not going anywhere Good. anytime soon. <laughs> Good. Good. And Maybe you, and I'll you look see. Today than you did than when I first met you. Oh, thanks. Uh, although, if if I run out of razors <laughs> soon, I, and we don't come out of this for another six months, I might revert back. Turn into a caveman again. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> thanks, Great, Chris. Rich. Thank you. We appreciate All it. Right. Thanks for listening to Vertical Playtime. And then what about thanks for listening to High Fives Podcast? Can you do it? Okay, try. Thanks for getting Article Pass, guys! <laughs>